One of my New Year's promises to you was to grow the economy. And today, we're announcing the second round of allocations from our Leveling Up Fund. And that's about investing in local areas in order to create jobs and help deliver on that promise to boost growth. That was the clip that made Rishi Sunak the second ever prime minister to get a fixed penalty notice while in office. The first was, of course, Boris Johnson. I'm joined by Aaron Bastani. How are you feeling about Seatbelt Gate? Underwhelmed, Michael. It's a typically trivial uh, story becoming of UK politics, but politicians who break the law, that is ultimately quite a big deal. Well, it's awkward you said that, Aaron, because we are going to be talking about it for the next hour. So um, you should look through the script. Now you've, uh, you might as well switch off if you agree. No, we're, we're not talking I, about... No, no, I have. We're not talking about Rishi Sunak at all. Although we are going to talk about levelling up a little bit later in the show and what he was actually announcing when he wasn't wearing his seatbelt. First, though, all about Keir Starmer at Davos. Despite spending decades at the heart of the establishment, Keir Starmer claims to not like Westminster very much. However, he has found somewhere else he feels at home. You have to choose now between Davos or Westminster. Davos. Why? <laughs> because Westminster is too constrained. Um, and, you know, it's closed and we're not having meaning. Once you get out of Westminster, whether it's Davos or anywhere else, you actually engage with people um, that you can see working with in the future. Westminster is just a, a tribal shouting place. That was Keir Starmer speaking to the News Agents podcast at the World Economic Forum in Davos. That's the annual forum which brings together the world's financial, political and cultural elites at a fancy ski resort in Switzerland. So who are those people with big ideas Starmer's been speaking with? It is an extraordinary place and, um, you know, my first time. So we arrived yesterday and it's been absolutely full-on busy, incredible intensity um, and very, very good to be here. I mean, uh, so this, give me a flavour of the conversations you've been having. Well, we've been talking to you know, CEOs, international CEOs of Lloyd's, Morgan Stanley, uh, J.P. Morgan, you name it. Um, and there's a there's a, song, a strong sense of anxiety about where the UK is, um, and sort of recognising that you know, a decade or so ago, the UK was a leader, was always looked to. And now what they're saying to me is, look, in the conversations they're having here, the UK is either not being mentioned, uh, which is a real cause for concern, or if mentioned, the question is coming up, well, why invest in the UK? And that is a, that I think shows the extent of the sort of brand damage that has been done in recent years and this sense of drift, no plan, um, you know, instability, particularly in the last couple of years, and uh, a real, you know, there's investment to be made in the UK, but it's not being made in the UK. And that's, you know, the, the, there's a sense of is, is urgency this, is that this things the need Labour to change. Is the Labour Party leader kind of interpreting that? Or is that really the flavour of what people were saying to you? This is the flavour. And I think, I mean, you've been here for a couple of days now. I'm sure you will have picked it up. And you can see it actually reflected in the numbers. If you look at um, foreign direct investment into the UK, 8% under the last Labour government, 4% um, in the last 13 years. So it's borne out by the figures. So that's pretty interesting. Keir Starmer sees himself at Davos as trying to repair brand Britain. And the people he's having that conversation with are Lloyd's, Morgan Stanley and JP Morgan. They're the three organisations he named, all massive investment banks. 
Later in the podcast, Keir Starmer spoke of a closer relationship with Europe as a principal means to winning back the confidence of international capital. And he critiqued the Tories for lacking any kind of economic strategy. That interview was earlier in the week, though. Today, Keir Starmer spoke to the actual conference. He was on a panel about green energy. At our party conference in the autumn of last year, we set our plans for what we call our green prosperity plan, um, going towards clean power generation by 2030. Um, and that's ambitious. That means and here in Davos has been an opportunity for me to speak to many CEOs of uh, businesses and investors who would partner us if we're in government to do that. But it also re requires um, global leadership. And um, one of the things that I am proposing is a clean power alliance where countries that are um, in the advance when it comes to net zero share um, information, cooperate, um, and share investment with a view to driving the global prices down. So this is an inverse OPEC, if you like. Um, instead of trying to you know, ensure prices stay at a certain level, it's to drive them down to see the common benefit, whether it's in the UK or across the globe. And um, if we could get that alliance working together, then I think um, that would be a big step in the right direction. So also in that speech, he went on to, to confirm that Labour wouldn't invest in any new coal or gas, probably the most concrete thing said there. Aaron, what do you make of Keir Starmer's trip to Davos? He seems to be enjoying himself. He does, doesn't he? I think the country's buggered, Michael, frankly. <laughs> that speech he gave, no, really, really, Michael, really. You know, I don't think he's even on top of basic details. He talks about clean energy by 2030. He means electricity. Key to say, not all energy is electricity. This is hugely important. We can decarbonize the grid by 2030. That's the plan. I don't think he even knows his own plan because that's a core, core detail. You could be charitable and say, well, he just missed it. Well, these are quite important details. And when he said about the inverse OPEC and collaboration, well, the world's leading climate superpower right now in terms of growth of wind, solar, lithium-ion storage, nuclear, the number one in terms of growth is off the charts is China. Are we going to collaborate with them? I don't believe so. So there's a lot of really vacuous rhetoric from this man. My view on Starmer is he's a great problem solver. I want to become the Labour leader. What do I need to do? He does it. I want to be the PM. What do I need to do? He does it. He's doing that right now, meticulously, ruthlessly. And by the way, that's a really good thing in a politician. I'm not criticizing that. But in terms of the policy shops and actually what he wants to execute in government, I think it's really, really light. That's partly an outgrowth of the fact, of course, he's not been a politician his whole life. And I understand that. But the downside there is that you become transfixed by the global elite very easily. And actually, from the way he's already talking about JP Morgan and Morgan Stanley, they don't invest in Britain. These are, these are financial services companies. We already have plenty of those in the UK. And yes, of course, Brexit means some of them might want to leave. They're not sure about EU passporting rights and so on and so forth. We have a very big finance industry in this country. It's not going to start employing loads more people. The problem is our manufacturing base. The problem is our public services. The problem is food and energy security. So the idea that Morgan Stanley is somehow a big player in terms of what happens next and how you renew Britain's economy, it's a nonsense. I think the man wants to be the prime minister. And presumably after a short stint, he'll want to go and be the chairperson of the IMF or whatever these people do. And, you know, they talk about economic competence and, you know, I'm like a bank manager. The man's a, a lawyer. He's a lawyer. That's how we run the global economy. It's people who go from law or marketing or public relations, that's what David Cameron did. They then run a country without the qualifications. Uh, they then go on to work on this sort of smorgasbord of various acronyms and NGOs. And 
multilateral organizations like the World Bank or the IMF, and nothing gets done. And they just talk about global collaboration while concentrations of CO2 in the atmosphere keep on going up, while inequality keeps on going up, and while despite the technological revolution of the 21st century, living standards stay flat. I was surprised at how bad some of his responses were. And that's not because, oh, Aaron Bastani doesn't like Keir Starmer. I think it really betrays how vacuous he is in policy. It would have been interesting if sort of there was some follow-up questioning on, I mean, what precisely can JP Morgan and Lloyd's do for us? I mean, you said that you know, they, they could invest in their financial services industries in London. I mean, they're, they're already there, but maybe they could expand them. Is another option, is it that they could advise the people that invest with them to invest in Britain? Is that something that JP Morgan will be doing? They'll be telling their, their rich investors, oh, you know where we recommend you put your money? Britain, because that Keir Starmer guy seems very trustworthy. Is that, is that plausible? I don't know. I mean, that's, that's basically he's about brand Britain. You know, we need to be, we've gone past that stage. We need, to, um, we need to be talking about, like I say, energy security, food security. We've just had COVID. You know, there are going to be many, many more crises like that over the course of the 21st century. Our demographic period, uh, pyramid is awful. We're going to have a crisis of elderly care in the next several decades. We need serious, serious thinking and serious people on this. And I feel like, you know, Starmer in this regard is very much a nod to Blair and Cameron in so much as, you know, he's just going to be a marketing frontman. And no, we need serious problem solving um, in regards to these crises, the climate crisis, inequality, energy security, geopolitics with the return of not just Russia, but that, that's, the, that's the leading edge of something far bigger. And this idea that, oh, we just need to market Britain better to the world and get foreign direct investment. Britain is one of the major source, sources of foreign direct investment overseas. And he talks about the 8% to 4%, how much it's fallen in the last 13 years. Foreign direct investment has fallen everywhere since the global financial crisis, because we saw a contraction in global trade. That wasn't just Britain. And fundamentally, the economic model of this country has been screwed since 2008, since the financial crisis. The problem that all parties have shared is that they've talked about growth, but they don't know how to execute it because they just basically say, let's go back to before 2008. Well, we can't do that. And so where do you start? You're going to have to start with an industrial policy that, yes, does look like something that Labour adopted after 2015 and which seems to have been killed by Keir Starmer in the meantime. You won't do that. So this, this default to, I will govern in the national interest, I will be overseeing brand Britain, multilateral cooperation, it's window dressing. It doesn't mean anything. There is some substance there. For instance, there will be no new drilling of oil or gas projects in the UK. That's good. There is some substance. But right now, it looks incredibly, incredibly limited, far more than what we see with the Biden White House, for instance. Now, Biden has surprised many of us, I think it's fair to say. Would Starmer do something similar? I would bet he won't. Now, of course, I want to be surprised. That's something I think our, our viewers don't really sometimes grasp. I, I, I really want to be surprised. I want Starmer to be an FDR, surprising us all and overseeing a big expansion of the state to solve these problems. But when he pitches himself literally as somebody who wants to deal with quote-unquote brand Britain, Michael, my head goes into my hands because that's the last thing we need. We don't need any more marketing people. We need problem solvers. Yeah, the mention of Blair there is interesting. At the beginning of the News Agents podcast, which that interview was on, um, Emily Maitlis says when they went to go meet Keir Starmer in a chalet somewhat, somewhere, or I don't know, I, I don't quite understand how these things work. Wherever they met him, Tony Blair was there, David Miliband was there, um, Tony Blair trying to find all these people to introduce Keir Starmer to. Now, we should be clear, it's not unusual for a Labour politician to go to Davos. In fact, as Shadow Chancellor, John McDonnell went in 2018. His message was rather different to Starmer's, though. I'm here in Davos today with a warning for the world's elite. 
They can sit here in a secure compound with its alpine restaurants and expensive chalets. But out there, beyond the fence, the economic system they built isn't working. People know it isn't working when they see their public services cut and their wages squeezed, whilst the richest 1% now own half of the world's wealth. So my warning is this. If our rigged economic system isn't radically changed, and its rules rewritten, people will no longer stand for it. The global elite are risking a social avalanche that will sweep them and their broken system away. Labour will transform our society, and we're not alone. It's a mission we share with parties and movements all around the world. We'll launch a global drive against tax dodging and financial secrecy, and for democratic control over our economy, and to protect our planet. We'll implement our own Robin Hood tax and call on others to join us. The Davos few have failed the many, and change is going to come. So the message couldn't really have been any more different from Keir Starmer. Keir Starmer going there saying, I'm trying to get Lloyds on side. I'm trying to get JP Morgan on side. I'm trying to tell them that Britain is open for business, improve brand Britain. What John McDonnell was going there to say is, you big business, you you know, international investors, you need to sort out your brand, right? Let's not worry about brand Britain. Let's worry about brand tax avoidance. Now, as far as I know, there were no references to Corbynism from Davos this year. And this, it seems to me, was the only time Starmer was asked about his views on his predecessor. You're an Arsenal fan. I'm going to give you two, the names of two diehard Arsenal fans and you've got to who, choose who you'd rather sit next to. Piers Morgan or Jeremy Corbyn? Piers Morgan. That, that was quick. That was quick. <laughs> that was very quick. Oh, the red face with that sort of, ha, yeah, it's a Piers Morgan, Corbyn. Like he's sort of like proud that he's done something naughty. Moving on from that answer from Keir Starmer, though, a, a lot has changed since 2018, Aaron, has it? D does it? Does it matter that we used to have a shadow chancellor going to Davos and delivering a warning to financial elites and now we have a leader of the opposition go to Davos and seems to be, you know, holding out a begging bowl saying, please, JP Morgan, please, Lloyds, please come to Britain. Makes no difference, does it really, Michael? Let's be frank. I mean, John McDonald was very good at pointing the fingers out. We're going to do this. We're not going away. Well, we, you have gone away. You're on the back benches. You didn't solidify any gains that you made within the Labour Party. Your policy agenda is dead. That's, that's been proven by the facts. You didn't build a broader movement. There's no legacy. So th those are just the facts. I know it's not nice for our audience to hear, but those are the literal facts. In terms of the, the broader context, you know, uh, yes, in 2018, you had an opposition party going to Davos and saying X, Y, Z. And now, yes, you have a Labour leader who's far more ameliorative towards big business. But the fundamental facts are, Michael, that we're losing hundreds of thousands of days a month because of industrial action in this country. And you're seeing a resurgence of the Labour movement because of falling your wages. Like I say, there are many crises this century. So demographic aging, for instance, is going to mean permanently higher inflation. The era of cheap money is, is over. Public services in this country are in collapse. And if you want to do anything about them, if you, if you literally just want to stop the rot, Michael, you're going to have to adopt a tax and, and spending agenda broadly like McDonald and Corbyn. You are. You just are. You, you can call yourself a Corbynista, or you, call, you can call yourself a centrist, you can call yourself what you want. But if you want to get those ambulance waiting times down, any waiting times down, you want to improve GP services, you want to make sure classroom sizes don't get too big, uh, you want to make sure that you know young people can continue to go to university and get the skills that they need, particularly in areas like nursing, midwifery, and so on and so forth. Recruit the 47,000 nurses we're short in the NHS. You want to do all of that, you're going to have to spend a hell of a lot more than either party is willing 
to concede. So those are the fundamentals. And, and Keir Stummer can have a conversation with himself and Tony Blair and David Miliband if he wants. He's, he's more than welcome to do that. Or to the news agents podcast. I mean, Emily Maitlis was on several, several hundred thousand pounds at the BBC, Michael, living in some wonderful house, I'm sure, somewhere in North London or West London. I have no idea where, but I'm sure it's a very, very nice house. Fundamentally, they aren't in touch with what's going on in this country. The death of the high street, stagnating living standards, crumbling public services. So look, he can say what he likes, but Things have changed a lot in the last four years, and the reality is, the last five years rather, and the reality is they've gotten significantly worse. And so I, I think the idea that as a result, the left gives up on its agenda is mistaken. Anything but, we have to double down. I'm going to move on to our next story. Rishi Sunak this week expected gratitude as he toured the country to hand out £2 billion in cash to local governments. It was all part of the Tories' levelling up fund. There were two problems with the scheme, though. First, the money was awarded disproportionately to Tory-held marginal seats, leading to allegations of cronyism. This graph from The Guardian shows how unevenly the money was distributed. The blue lines are conservative seats and the grey ones are seats held by other parties. They're ranked from most deprived at the top to least deprived at the bottom. And you can see that in the most deprived areas, Tory-held seats took nearly £100 per capita, while all other seats only got about £25 per head. And that pattern holds across all economic bands except band eight. Those are fairly affluent areas, presumably, I would imagine, ones that the Tories hope to take because seats held by other parties suddenly came into a lot of money. And The Guardian's number crunching doesn't end there with the paper saying this. Conservative marginal seats have received 1.5 times the amount of funding per person than all other constituencies under the £4 billion budget, £76 a head compared with £53 a head. Constituencies that won under the Conservative landslide in 2019, many of which will be vulnerable at the next general election, have been awarded almost twice as much per person as other seats. Those constituencies, which include red wall areas such as Burnley, Workington and Blythe Valley, have received £90 a head under the levelling up fund compared with an average of £53 a head in all other seats. The critical fact there being that if you look at seats which are equal in terms of the extent of poverty there, it, it seems to matter whether or not the Tories are really keen to win that seat at the next general election. Right? There is a second problem. Their extra cash amounts to only a tiny proportion of what has been cut from local government budgets over the past 13 years. That was a point ex-city trader Gary Stevenson made well on Politics Live. Is this going to transform people's lives in these areas? Well, I mean, if I take £15 off you and then give you £2.80, is that going to transform your life? These guys, they've found £2.8 billion to give to local councils. In the last two years, they've given £700 billion to the rich. I know you, now you've made... fifty times as much. Listen, is it levelling up if I give a poor person £2.80 and I give a rich person £250? No, sorry, £700. 250 times as much. Listen... This government has presided over the largest and fastest ever increase in inequality in the history of the country. And the most Orwellian thing you've ever heard, they call that levelling up. Very well put. Now, um, in terms of the precise numbers, I think £2.1 billion from the levelling up fund was announced yesterday. This is the second round of awards from the fund, which is worth £4.8 billion in total. Core funding to local government from central government fell by £15 billion in the decade from 2010. And what you also heard Gary Stevenson talk about there was the money which was printed by the government, especially during COVID-19 in the form of furlough and handouts to business, which according to his analysis, which you can hear more of um, on his brilliant podcast with Aaron Bastani, all ended up flowing 
to the richest in society. Hence, we have greater inequality than we had before the pandemic. And the distribution of, of this levelling up fund has even pissed off some Tories. Andy Street is the Tory mayor of the West Midlands. He released this statement after the winning bids for levelling up funds were announced. Fundamentally, this episode is just another example as to why Whitehall's bidding and begging bowl culture is broken. And the sooner we can decentralise and move to proper fiscal devolution, the better. The centralised system of London civil servants making local decisions is flawed, and I cannot understand why the levelling up funding money was not devolved for local decision makers to decide on what's best for the areas. So he was pissed off that unlike core funding to local governments before austerity, this money was all decided by Whitehall where it goes. So you had various local authorities putting together bids. They say, please, we want some of your money so that we can do up our town centre, or please, we want to do up XYZ which we think would be worthwhile. And then some civil servants in Whitehall decide, oh, that project is valuable, we'll accept it. That project isn't, we'll reject it. That's actually how all this, you know, all this talk of cronyism came in because you've got people in Whitehall deciding who gets the money and who doesn't, mainly goes to conservative marginal seats. Aaron, what do you make of this story, this levelling up fund? And what did you make of Gary's intervention on Politics Live? Well, Gary was typically excellent. Um, I would advise people to go on to iPlayer. I won't say that very often to watch the whole thing. And of course, to uh, after that, watch him on YouTube. I think that interview now has 400,000 views over that. A really, really strong interview. And that's for a reason. That's not me just saying that to be self-aggrandizing. It's really, really good. I had lots of good feedback on it. In terms of the cronyism claim, I just I think that's secondary. I think it's kind of stupid. So for instance, and, and I'm sure there's a kernel of truth to it, but I don't think it's the main story here. Uh, and I don't think it's audacious. People have said, well, the Southeast is getting twice as much money as Yorkshire. Well, the Southeast is a population of 9.1 million. Yorkshire is a population of 5 million. So per capita. And then, of course, they say, well, Yorkshire is getting no money, but Rishi Sunak's seat is getting so much money. Of course, Sunak's constituency is seeing less than 1% of overall spending of this 2.1 billion. Still, significant sum. But to, to say that it's, you know, somehow it's pork barrel, I think is a bit of a stretch. The biggest project in terms of per capita spending is the one on the Shetland Islands that is not held by the Conservatives. So there are many inconsistencies with this claim that, you know, it's just glaring cronyism and nepotism, and it's purely about the Tories trying to win the next election. Another huge project is in Cardiff, connecting Cardiff Bay with Cardiff uh, Central Station. So, you know, are we saying now our project in Wales is about the Conservatives trying to set up the next election? And yes, of course, far more money is going into Conservative seats, but if you break it down by councils, I believe... Actually, it's Labour councils, which are getting more of this money. So it, it kind of goes both ways. The Guardian's picked up on this thing. I mean, I just don't, frankly, Michael, I think it's it's this puerile way of doing politics, which everything the Tories do is bad because it's cronyism and nepotistic and corrupt. I just don't think that's the main story here. I think the main story is, like you say, the sums involved aren't that big. There's three rounds of this. This is the second one. It's 2.1 billion. But this approach of having kind of like, pop idol style applications to get money to do stuff in your local area is bad. You know, we need to devolve decision-making in this country and, and local councils and communities should be sufficiently empowered to spend money as they see fit rather than get out the begging bowl and have to do some tap dancing to some bureaucrat or some government minister in Whitehall. So the approach is wrong, I think. The money clearly is inadequate. You know, we need far more money to regenerate places that are unfashionable and not talked about outside the M25 and just 2 billion. And that's just this round, but it's still not very much. And I think to me, that's far more important than the whole cronyism thing. I'm sure somebody will clip this up and say, oh, Pastani, conservative, he's letting them off. I just don't think that's the main issue here. I don't think that's the main issue. 
And when you see stories like, for instance, the four largest urban areas in Cornwall are going to be connected and it's going to cost something like 40, 30, 40, 50 million pounds, you think, why hasn't that been done already? And, and the truth is, Michael, there is so much low-hanging fruit in this country with regards to infrastructure, which should have happened 10, 15 years ago. You know, if you look at Crossrail, HS2, that, that, that should have been done in the early 2000s. I mean, the Spanish could do it with high-speed rail. We're really playing catch-up. And so it's good that places like, you know, Dundee or uh, bits of Cornwall or, you know, Merthyr, Bangor, I think, was a big uh, recipient of cash in Wales. It's great that places like this are, are getting funding for projects, but it should be far more money, and I think it should be done differently. I mean, I do think there are explanations to this which aren't cronyism. So this is the graphic I showed from The Guardian, so it's showing that in, in the most deprived 10% of seats, if you were a conservative, if it was a conservative seat, you were likely to have got about £100 per capita. If you were a non-conservative seat, you were likely to have got only sort of £25 per capita. I mean, what would your explanation of that be, Aaron? Do you think that's just because labor, poor labor seats tend to be in a city which have better infrastructure anyway, and poor conservative seats tend to be a bit more provincial? I think that's partly it, Michael. I think, you know, you'd say that um, the whole leveling up thing is about going beyond the major metropolitan areas, although there is some spending towards places in London and whatnot. Labour accumulates loads of seats in London, West Midlands, Northwest, Manchester, Liverpool, Northeast, despite all the, all the things we hear in the media, there's still many Labour seats in the Northeast. So that's, that's part of it. But also there are many, many Conservative seats, Michael, which were historically Labour seats. They swung in 2019, but they still have Labour councils, many of them. And so we're saying, well, these are all conservative seats getting the funding. But believe me, in the local papers, those applications were being made by Labour councillors. And they'll be rejoicing that they've got the funding for those projects. If you look at, for instance, Portsmouth North, Penny Mordaunt is the MP there. Of course, she's a very prominent conservative. No funding there. And then you get something in South Wales, or Cardiff, like I say, connecting the bay with the central station. You get a, a huge amount of funding. And that will be a real... Uh, bonus, a real push to, to local Labour politicians there. So look, I'm, I'm not on top of all the detail. Maybe in two years time or something, Pippa Crera and The Guardian will uncover some story about you know nepotism and cronyism. I just, I just don't think that's the main story here. And I think it's kind of people just stuck in a groove. We now do political reporting about the Conservatives and we always use this frame. And I, I just don't think it's the main way of understanding the story and, and what's wrong with the, with the political decisions being made. Next story. Nadim Zahawi is one of the wealthiest people in Parliament. His fortune is estimated to be somewhere around £100 million, but he's either a bit disorganised with that cash or likes to keep it away from the tax man. They are, I think, the only conclusions we can draw from the fact that Zahawi has been forced to pay more than a million pounds to HMRC as a penalty for unpaid tax. The Guardian has the story. They report this. A source familiar with the payment told The Guardian a penalty was triggered as a result of non-payment of capital gains tax due after the sale of shares in YouGov, the polling company Zahawi co-founded. He could have been subject to larger penalties had he not reached a settlement towards the end of last year, they claim. Experts estimate the tax due was about £3.7 million based on the capital gains tax incurred by the sale of multiple tranches of shares in YouGov worth more than £20 million which led to transfers of money to Zahawi. It is understood HMRC applied a 30% penalty to that £3.7 million, bringing the total due to £4.8 million. Combined with interest charges that HMRC also applies to taxes owed, this is believed to have taken the final settlement to more than £5 million. 
Now, when asked about The Guardian's allegations, Zahawi's spokesperson didn't deny that a penalty had been paid, saying this, Nadim Zahawi does not recognise this amount, as he has previously stated, his taxes are properly declared and paid in the UK. Well, they are now. It seems like for a while they, they weren't. You might ask, if they were properly declared, why did he have to pay a million pound plus penalty? Something doesn't quite add up there. Now, the fine relates to a company called Balshaw Investments, which held the £20 million made from the sale of Zahawi's YouGov shares. It's an entity registered in tax haven Gibraltar. Zahawi has long described it as a family trust and last summer declared that he had no financial interest in it and had never benefited financially from it. But last summer, it was reported that the National Crime Agency had investigated Zahawi's finances and that HMRC was also taking a closer look. So when those allegations were made, this is how he responded to those claims when Sky's Kay Burley asked him about them in July. I need to ask you about your um, investigation into your own uh, tax affairs. Um, what was your reaction when you saw reports that your own tax affairs were being investigated by your own department? So I was you know, clearly being smeared. I was being told that, that the serious fraud offers, that the National Crime Agency, the HMRC are looking uh, into me. I've, you know, I'm not aware uh, of this. I will, I've always declared my taxes. I've paid my taxes in the UK. Uh, I will you know, answer any questions HMRC has uh, uh, of me. So for context, that was during Zahawi's bid to be prime minister. And it might seem as though this should be a scandal. After all, Zahawi was the chancellor for a brief period, the person in charge of setting tax rules for the rest of us. And he's still a government minister as well as chairman of the Conservative Party. But the Tories' response so far has been very much nothing to see here. Have a listen to what Michael Gove said on Radio 4. He was speaking after the news that Zahawi had made a multi-million pound payment to the taxman, but before it was revealed that a penalty was also involved. What you very carefully said is um, he says he's paid all his tax, as in yeah. he's now paid all of his tax. The suggestion is that he had to pay millions, not the odd hundred pound or thousand pound here or there, millions mm. of pounds in unpaid back tax. And I'd just ask you, are you effectively saying to the public, nothing to see here, it's all his private business, you've no right to know? No, because, I mean, again, you're very skillful in sort of, taking the essence of my my answer, which you fairly un understood, and then sort of presenting it as though I was trying to be, a, you know, high-handed and, and, and all the rest of it. Um, uh, what I would prefer to say uh, is uh, HMRC are the tax authorities. They should uh, scrutinise everyone's tax return and make it uh, clear to individuals and organisations what they should pay. People should and must pay up. My firm understanding is that uh, HMRC have no quibble with Nadim. Um, uh, he's paid everything that he should. And people paying their taxes, I don't think is a story. People not paying their taxes, yeah, that is a problem. Now, if the Guardian story is correct, it really does imply that this is a story about someone not paying their tax or not having paid their tax, at least. In Prime Minister's Questions, Rishi Sunak was asked about the case too. This month, the right honourable member for Stratford-upon-Avon was forced to pay millions to HMRC to settle a tax dispute. Was the Prime Minister aware of the investigation when he appointed him to his cabinet and as chairman of the Conservative Party? Will the Prime Minister demand accountability from his cabinet members about their tax affairs? Yes! Yeah. Yeah. Well, Mr Speaker, my, uh, my honourable friend has already addressed this matter in full and that's nothing more that I can add. 
So again, before news of the penalty emerged, so after it emerged that he'd have to give multi-millions in payments to HMRC, but before we precisely knew there was this 30% penalty. So that's the situation when the Guardian contacted the Prime Minister's office for comment on the case, and he said this, Sunak's official spokesperson said Zahawi has spoken and been transparent with HMRC despite his refusal to answer specific questions. She added, quote, I don't know whether the Prime Minister has reviewed it in full, but I do know that he takes Nadim Zahawi at his word. Asked if Sunak was confident he knew everything he needed to know about the affair, she responded yes and said he had full confidence in Zahawi. Now, Sunak might come to regret that confidence. The HMRC have said, of course, that it won't comment on the tax arrangements of individuals, but Labour has demanded an inquiry into the former Chancellor's tax affairs. Deputy Leader Angela Rayner has written to HMRC saying this, it is manifestly in the public interest for HMRC to explain the nature of this payment and whether the man who just months ago was in charge of the nation's finances and HMRC itself has admitted fault or incurred financial penalties as part of his settlement. Ordinary British taxpayers would incur financial penalties if they had displayed a lack of reasonable care that deprived the public purse of significant revenue and urgent clarity is needed in this case if the growing suspicion of double standards or preferential treatment is to be avoided. Labour have now called for Zahawi to resign. As I said, I've been switching sometimes between fine and penalty. Everyone seems to be saying this is a penalty because I think he agreed to pay it, but he was also forced to pay it. I think if he'd refused to pay it and then been taken to court and lost, it would have become a fine. I mean, to me, in ordinary parlance, the guy's been fined. Aaron, should he resign over this? I mean, he should resign. There's lots of these questions we've had with regards to the Conservatives over the last several years. I mean, he should resign. I don't think he will resign, but I think he should resign. And it's, it's important to say, Michael, that Mr. Zahawi is a very mercurial, interesting, curious individual. He also didn't declare his chairmanship of an organization called Le Circle, which is a CIA-funded Atlanticist think tank, very murky, not much is known about it, was a really big supporter of apartheid and um, opposition to communism before the early 1990s. Very, very strange Atlanticist body. He was chairing that between 2015 and 2018. Extraordinarily wealthy man. And I think the fact you have somebody like that operating at the very top of public life and politics in this country, and with such little accountability and scrutiny, and who seemingly now can get away with something like this and not pay the price politically by having to submit his resignation, I think says a lot, not just about the Conservative Party, but the state of British politics, very decadent um, public sphere and political life that we have in this country. If somebody likes Zahawi can keep on getting away with these things. And, and like I say, something so extraordinary as, as tax, I think, you know, that is something which everybody in the country, whether they're conservative, Lib Dem, Labour voters, or none of the above, would find really unacceptable from an elected official, particularly somebody as wealthy as Zahawi. And, and yet, so far, he's not attended his resignation. He should do Labour are right to call for it. Sometimes, you know, you have the opposition parties calling for resignations and it's a bit of a storm in a teacup. This is most certainly not that. He should do the right thing and resign. I suspect he won't. But I hope that Labour and parts of the media carry on with this story, terrier-like. And if uh, Zahawi doesn't do the right thing, well, his reputation should descend further into the mire. Yeah, and to me, it does really seem as if there are two options which both should probably lead to resignation. So the one option as I say, is that he has no idea what he's doing with his money. Not, not a particularly organized person. He, by accident, didn't pay £3 million that he owed in tax and then ended up getting a 30% penalty for it. You know, so it's just a pretty disorganized guy. 
the other option is he was actively hiding it. Those seem like the two options to me. Or he got an accountant who was very disorganized. I'm not sure. This is a man who is currently the chair of the Conservative Party. So he should be organizing their money. This is the, the guy who should be on top of what donations they're getting and declaring it all. Now, do you, do you trust this guy to declare those donations properly? And even worse, he was Chancellor, right? So this was a guy who was Chancellor of the Exchequer who either can't organize his millions to the extent that he forgets to pay the taxman over three million pounds or has been actively trying to minimize the amount of tax he pays to the taxman. Neither of those make the guy look good. Next story. Lee Anderson is the Tory MP for Ashfield, who has very enthusiastically piled in on his party's war on nurses. First thing on Thursday morning, he tweeted this. He's tweeting a Mirror article. Rich Tory tells skint nurses budget better. And Lee Anderson says, the point here is that anyone, not just nurses, earning more than 30k and using food banks must have a budgeting problem. I have constituents, i.e. armed forces, bin men, bar staff, care workers, bus drivers, pensioners, etc., who can all live on less. Am I missing something? Now, as you can imagine, Lee Anderson got quite a lot of pushback on social media for that. But he wouldn't end there. He fought back. And in doing so, he posted this follow up. There's a picture of someone called Katie, who is his staffer. Katie works for me. She is single and earns less than £30,000. Rents a room for £775 per calendar month in central London. Has student debt. £120 a month on travelling to work. Saves money every month. Goes on foreign holidays and does not need to use a food bank. Katie makes my point really well. Aaron, I want your thoughts on this. We're going to go into some detail into the background of Katie in a moment. But first of all, regardless of who she is or might be, this to me reads as a Tory saying, if you don't earn much money, don't have kids, right? Because obviously it's much easier to live on 30K if you are single and can just rent one room in a shared house. Uh, the Tories now the party of you know, anti-family values. If you can't afford kids, don't have them. You should all live like Katie, someone presumably in her 20s um, with no dependents. Yeah, it really was, you know, th that, that word that we hear so much in UK politics, Michael, aspiration. This was like the, the, the quintessence of anti-aspiration. Work really hard, go to university, get a good degree, and then you too can work for one of the several hundred most powerful legislators in the country at the heart of our nation's government. You can work there. Uh, in your mid-twenties after studying really hard, and you too can live in a single room like a student for the rest of your life <laughs> while not saving money, not saving for old age, being unable to uh, have children, start a family, or even own your own car. You know, Michael, this is an extraordinary tacit admission from Lee Anderson. He's not smart enough, I think, to realize what he's done there. Somebody on £30,000 a year after tax is looking at, I think, £23,800. Then, of course, you've got student debt, then you've got your bills and uh, your rent and so on and so forth. And in London, frankly, rent and, and bills go over a thousand pounds, looking at council tax and whatnot, your phone. And so realistically, you're looking at then living on around 200 pounds a week, probably less. That, of course, has got to include your transport, your food. You have the occasional thing like dental care, clothes and whatnot. And so then discretionary spending, Michael, is, is really, really small. You're looking at about less than 100 pounds. It's all about going out and whatnot. Less than 100 pounds. You clearly can't have children. Clearly. You clearly can't save. You clearly can't put that much into a, 
into um, a pension, you clearly can't own a car. Clearly. If you are, you are one tragedy, one accident away from penury, having no money whatsoever, you can't really generate much of a cushion for yourself. You know, Michael, in, in the UK a few years ago, this before COVID, so the numbers have probably changed a little bit, but in the UK, around 17 million people were, were judged as having £100 or less in savings. 17 million people of working age, I should add, £100 or less in savings, which is to say, if something really bad happens, those people are absolutely screwed. And yes, they will end up needing a food bank. Uh, so he he really has misjudged this. And I I find it remarkable that somebody can say, yep, top job, at the center of power, well-educated, and you're going to live basically like a university student well into your 30s, and life's just going to be kind of that kind of crap. This is very new. People weren't saying that was normal or acceptable in the 1990s or the 2000s. But the fact he assumes that it is, I think, really reveals how much has changed. There's one thing I want to push back at you on there, Aaron. You, you said if you're on 30K, if you're living this lifestyle, you're probably one accident away from penury. Now, for many people, that is true. It's not going to be true if you have very wealthy parents. And that does seem to be the case here. So unfortunately for this staffer, um, her boss tweeting out a picture of her with quite a lot of personal information meant that people could quite easily research her background. Um, many people on Twitter did. And the Daily Mail dedicated an entire article to her. This is the headline. Revealed. Staff member on less than 30k used by the Tory MP Lee Anderson as argument against nurses needing to use food banks went to a £33,000 a year private school and is the daughter of decorated army veteran. And the Daily Mail expand on her father's job like this. Brigadier David Culfop, CBE, so this guy is, 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 has an honour, was a senior member of the armed forces who was commissioned into the historic Green Howard's Yorkshire Regiment in 1989. An alumnus of the esteemed Sandhurst Military Academy, Brig Culfop served across the world for over three decades, including combat operations in tours of Afghanistan, Bosnia and the First Gulf War. He was most recently the director of operations for all army recruiting and initial training. So with a family like that, I imagine... I imagine if Katie runs out of money before the end of the month, she's not going to have to resort to a food bank. So this is now the Tory message. Look, you don't need to use a food bank as long as you're in your 20s, you live in a room in a big shared house, you don't dream of having children or dependents, you don't drive a car, you scrimp and save all week, and in case anything goes wrong, you have incredibly wealthy parents, everything's fine. Why, why can't you all just have incredibly wealthy parents, not have kids, live in a shared house? It's... It's completely bizarre. I feel a little bit sorry for this staffer. Presumably she has some political allegiances to Lee Anderson. So there is a limit to my sympathy, but I don't know if she imagined the Daily Mail were going to um, research her background when her boss tweeted out that very misjudged tweet. Lee is no stranger to misjudged tweets. He has been very busy on Twitter. And just a day before the attack on nurses and the expose of his staffer, he posted this video. Get the toes done. A bit more polish there. Clean. On the left one first. Not too much attention on the left because we don't care about the left, do we? But uh, let's see what happens next. So, in the buffing room now. Uh, got my shoes. Got the polish on. Put the buffer on. Put waft there for the old buffer. Not too much attention on the left one, for obvious reasons. I don't know what's the main buffer. There you go, look. 
quite young. That joke was really not good enough to say twice. Oh, we don't care about the left shoe, do we? Asking him for directions. Oh, it's on the right and then on the left. Oh, we don't care about the left, do we? How many times can you do that in a day? But let's look at the caption that went with this video. Behind the scenes, you can tell a lot of a person from how clean their shoes are. And that's what the, the video is related to. It's important to say when you look at those, those Lee Anderson videos, Michael, he's, he's the Tory Ed. He's the boomer Tory Ed. So we saw the one about shoe polish. Another one was how to do up a tie. You know, that this is the classic stuff. Put on a suit, put on a, you know, have a haircut, short back and sides, put on a tie, polish your shoes, go out there and get a job. That is the sort of like basic stuff. My mum my mom was a working class Tory. She, she loved this stuff, right? She was a boomer. She was a boomer, God rest her soul. Like you say, I don't think it really works with much of the, with the working age population. He did make a, a 101 rookie error for a boomer Tory, Michael. He used shoe polish on a carpet. Never do that. Never do that. Because if you stay in the carpet, then you're, you're buggered. So he really undermined his own credentials with this stuff. But you're right to say that th this was like the default of working class conservatism all the way through the 1990s, all the way through to then. And, and it's kind of died. And what's interesting is that people like Rishi Sunak aren't really familiar with it. You know, they've, they've never really been at home with it. It's never really been, been a part of their life. And so you wonder where it goes. And, and I feel like those energies, if, if we did have proportional representation in this country, you would have a party to the right of the Conservatives staffed with people like Farage. And this is literally all they would talk about. You know, culture war talking points like, oh, Kiwi boot polish doesn't exist anymore. What happened? You know, <laughs> that, that, that's, actually, that's actually a thing they're trying to make happen at the moment. Right? I don't know if you saw this. Kiwi boot polish, there's other brands, by the way. Kiwi boot polish no longer exists. So... It is interesting, and like you say, he does reflect a certain demographic, which isn't as politically powerful as it, as it, as it used to be. Also, the whole, you know, I'm polishing my shoes by using a buffering machine. I thought that was a bit, I thought the whole point was, you know, graft. You know, you, I thought you the, if you want to go the full Monty on this, Michael, yes, you don't just polish your shoes. You also do the whole military thing of like using a lighter to get them extra mm. shiny. That would be peak Tory boomer. Lee Anderson, you failed. Amen. Let's go to our final story. Last year, our very own Aaron Bastani gave a TED talk in Vancouver, and they've now posted it online. We join the talk where Aaron is explaining the meaning of fully automated luxury communism. Fully automated because we need an economic system which reduces the necessity of human labor in the production process. Luxury because we need to expand the sense of liberty and leisure time for all. A communism because what I believe is heading our way this century maybe, could see the end of production for exchange and the necessity of humans to sell their labor for a wage. But in politics, big ideas only get you so far. That's been a problem for the left historically. I don't know if you know. <laughs> and what matters in the here and now in 2022 are concrete proposals. So how do we leverage the technology revolution? How do we employ the state to address all the challenges I've just spoken about, which I'm pretty sure everybody in this room would acknowledge rising inequality, the climate crisis, demographic aging. But for some, the answer is a universal basic income, a UBI. Now, despite being a millennial and still petrified whenever I look at my bank balance, I'm not a fan. And the reason is an affordable UBI is ineffective and an effective UBI is unaffordable. My proposal instead is Universal Basic Services, UBS. These are services which are universally available, 
free of the points of consumption and paid for through progressive taxation. A bit like the NHS in the UK. I propose four of these universal basic services. Healthcare, housing, transport, and education. Why these four? Housing. Well, because you can't focus on long-term problem solving or making something of yourself if you have to move every 12 months. Believe me, I know. Healthcare, because the basis of everything else is physical and mental well-being. Education, because you can't be of service to your community if you don't have skills. And we need to start acknowledging that an educated society is a public good. People training as dentists, as midwives, as engineers, hey, as accountants. We need those people. Society needs those people with those skills to not just thrive, but to survive. And we all benefit from them having those skills. Transport, because you can have the skills, you can have the housing, but location can remain a constraint on access to opportunity. Now, our audience can see that whole talk, the case for free universal basic services on the TED website. I watched it earlier today. Very impressive. I was very impressed it was delivered without an autocue. Very coherent. I don't know how, how much you had to practice. I suppose, though, instead of going into the arguments, you know, our, our, our viewers can check out the, the talk in full. I kind of want to know how that argument was taken. I mean, you know, because of current events, we've been talking about Davos, where the world's sort of great and good and elites from the financial, cultural, political spheres hang out. I mean, TED Talks are kind of similar, right? You know, Elon Musk was there. How did those arguments you were making go down? Were the people at TED into fully mm. automated luxury communism? A surprising number of people were, yeah, receptive. And I, I think, look, that talk is about universal basic services. It's a, it's a talk about social democratic policy. And I, and I fit that within the broader story of the book. It is a part of the book. What, what I'm describing there is not communism. And if you think, well, there's an incongruence there, I suggest read the book. So I talk about that. It's a step to something else. What I think everybody in the room agreed on, Michael, and I think this was actually far more notable with the US elite than it is with the UK elite, is they know there is a serious crisis out there. And I think they know that because of the, the scare with Trump and January 6th and whatnot. And so they look at the climate crisis, they look at rising inequality, they look at automation, they look at elderly care and so on and so forth. They don't just think, you know what, we can just sit this one out. We can just be passengers here and there'll be a few bumps in the ride, but we'll keep our wealth. There'll be no major political outsiders threatening the status quo. Uh, the working class won't get pitchforks, right? We'll go back to the 1990s soon enough. They don't think that. And actually, speaking to people privately, and of course, I can't betray private confidence, but speaking to people privately, influential people, you know, okay, not Elon Musk, but influential people in, in, in important corporations, you know, they would say, yeah, I don't think it's implausible that the US will have a state secede in the next 20, 30 years or, or civil war or some kind of some kind of real breakdown of the rule of law in a particular city or a particular state and that leading to unforeseen consequences. That's what people were saying within, within the American elite. So I think in terms of the problems, they really are acknowledging them, Michael. That was my experience, far more than you get at Westminster. The, the British media, by the way, that includes this, the, the liberal left media, the Guardian, all the way through to the right, the BBC, they know these problems are there, but I don't think they take them seriously. They don't take them seriously. I think they do in the US, like I say, partly because they have a leadership role within the bourgeois, right? The global bourgeois, like these are Facebook, Google, like you have to be serious about political risk. And also at the same time, like I say, that they had, they had the Trump episode and they don't want to avoid it. Um, they don't want to repeat it rather, which it may well do. You know, that's not disappeared as a problem for them. So yeah, the crises 
they are very much aware of. And then, of course, it gets down to the solutions. And of course, then we can have a bit of a disagreement. But when I was talking about the crises, the challenges of the 21st century, which is, you know, the first third of my book, fundamentally, I had massive buy-in from, buy from everybody I spoke to, which is really, really interesting, actually. You know, I spoke to people from Facebook, people from all kinds of corporations. There was one guy who was telling me, actually, Michael, you'd love this. He was telling me that he got to speak to Elon Musk briefly. And he said, look, Burning Man, you love Burning Man. It's got no money because, of course, there was the COVID pandemic. We've got no money. Can you give us five million pounds to, to, to get Burning Man back on track? And Elon Musk was like, oh, I don't know. I don't think so. And he said, look, we've been speaking for half an hour. I know that you earned more than what I'm asking for in half an hour, every hour in 2021. This is crazy. You're making money more quickly than you can spend it. Can, can, can I please have the money? So it was interesting hearing those kinds of anecdotes. But yes, they're, they're much more receptive around the, the diagnosis than they are in the UK. But of course, the prescription of universal basic services and fully automated luxury communism, now that's a work in progress. What do you think about the current state of debate when it comes to universalism? I feel like, you know, when Bernie Sanders was running to be president, when Jeremy Corbyn was leader of the Labour Party, there was a lot of buzz around universalism. So your example there given was, you know, the NHS, you've got the state which manages healthcare, gives it out for free, uh, free at the point of delivery, all paid for by taxation. It seems like, you know, political debate seems to be shifting away from it. And especially thinking about the NHS now, where we've got the Labour Party saying we shouldn't treat it as a religion. Lots of people pointing to social, sort of universal social security systems on the continent where healthcare is paid partly via taxation, but also um, from people's pay packets. And there's some degree of private insurance, even if no one goes without. And arguments being made that that actually, you know, works a bit better because you've got the service a little bit separated from whichever party is in, in power. So you can have the right wing get in power in France and Germany, the left wing get in power in France and Germany, and you've still got a well-funded healthcare system because, you know, there's, there's a degree of remove from party politics and the service itself. I mean, what do you make of, of, of the state of that debate right now? Yeah, I think on healthcare, it's, it's clearly taken a massive sort of step back, Michael. I think that's right. At the same time, you know, it's the source of my next book, um, which is the, the demographic crisis, the demographic pyramid crisis, which is to say more and more people living into old age. Good, fantastic. That's a really good thing. Hallmark of civilizational success and fewer and fewer children. So what you have over time is a shrinking taxpayer base, a working age population supporting a very large number of older people, some of them living to very, very old ages and, of course, very expensive care needs. This is a big problem in terms of growth, in terms of public spending, and in terms of inflation. Because, of course, fewer workers means they can ask more for their, their labor, and that means the price of labor goes up. And, of course, labor is a big input to prices. Prices go up. So demographic aging is, a, is another big challenge. And I think when you look at demographic aging, if you're not adopting a universalist approach, whether that's through things like childcare, like pronatalist policies, which, by the way, don't all have to come from the right. Lots of people want kids but can't have them because they can't, can't afford to have them like somebody who's working, by the way, in Westminster for 30 grand a year, they can't afford to have kids, right? Even if they want to. So I think pronatalist policies are going to have to be universal. And I think with regards to elderly care, it's going to have to be universal. And I think, you know, you've got people right now, older people, conservative voters, will say, I, I don't believe in a death tax. You know, I worked hard on my life to buy my house. I don't, by the way, very few people pay inheritance tax. I don't want to have worked all my life and all my money goes to the tax man. Well, look, if you live to 95 and you die from what is now the leading cause of death in this country, which is dementia, 
loads of your money is going to go and pay for your elderly care. You know, you'll be living in some nursing home and £1,500 a week will be going to some nursing somewhere. And so I think there is a big sell across the classes about socialized elderly care. Because like the NHS, if you look at the US healthcare system and the UK healthcare system, we get better outcomes on a bunch of things, lower infant mortality, longer life expectancy, a far smaller percentage of, of the economy. So in the US, it's about 16, 16%. Here, it's about 10%. You could bump it up here 1%, 2%, and it'd be amazing in the UK, right? So it's not a question of we can't afford to have universalism with elderly care or socialized elderly care system. It's a question of we can't afford not to do that. So I think universalism is absolutely here to stay. The problem is, particularly in the UK, we just don't have serious centre-left politicians who realise it. Of course, you can go check out that full speech on the TED website. I don't think they put it up on YouTube yet. I think maybe they're sort of trying to migrate people to their own platform and read fully automated luxury communism if you haven't already. I'm very excited for your next book, Aaron. Thank you for joining me this evening. A pleasure as always. My pleasure, Michael. I just want to say as well, I was out in London yesterday and I, I, I just was on the tube and somebody said, oh, Aaron Masari from Tisky Sour. And I said, what news sources do you read? And she said, I only really watch Tisky Sour. Michael, that is such a credit to what you've done and Fox, of course. We'll give you everything you need. There's no need to go anywhere else. Have a great weekend. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.